well met everyone. Welcome to Geek Thyself, a podcast by a nerd for other nerds that love geeking out over random facts and esoteric trivia. My name is Heather and I'll be your host as we journey into the wondrous land of information. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Geek Thyself. So, Because of when my episodes come out, I hadn't recorded one yet to go out for International Women's Day, which happened a few days ago. But because it just happened, I did want to touch base on that with this week's topic. So this week, I'm going to be talking about a woman who definitely played a large role in her community, was a woman of color, and more recently has been talked about in media and the news and whatnot because she is going to be the new person on the $20 bill, and that is Harriet Tubman. For anyone who isn't in the know, Harriet Tubman was born a slave, managed to get herself free, and then not only established herself as a member of the African-American freed slave community and as an abolitionist, which means she was anti-slavery and trying to get rid of it, She also went back and rescued her family as well as other people. So she definitely was not necessarily a pioneer because other people had done it before her, but especially at the time, she was a very formidable woman given where she had come from and some of her health issues and whatnot that she had from when she was a slave. So Harriet Tubman was born around 1820, Like with so many things from back then, and especially, unfortunately, with slavery records, it's hard to be exact. There's a lot of records that'll say, you know, X child was born X year, but some of those have been lost, especially after, like, the Civil War and everything. Some of those records disappeared or were damaged. Also, there's the fact that the slave owners just didn't care, which is really, really sad to say, but they they just honestly didn't. They kept track, kind of, because they needed to know for their inventory purposes, because to them, slaves were inventory, which is very unfortunate. But because of that, they didn't always keep perfect records. So we know she was born roughly somewhere around 1820 to 1822-ish, but we don't have an exact year. Harriet Tubman was actually born under a different name. Her birth name was Araminta Ross, and she was born to two slaves, Harriet Green and Ben Ross. They were married, but they also belonged to two different people, which unfortunately was something that did happen back then. They were together partly because the two people they belonged to got married. So they were in the same household and Harriet had multiple siblings. According to records, it looks like she had roughly eight or nine siblings. It's again, hard to be exact, but that's the guesstimate. She was raised with some religion. Her parents were God-fearing people, and they did raise her Christian, although she couldn't read or write. So all of her Bible stories that she had were word of mouth, which was very common back then, especially for slavery, excuse me, especially for slaves. They weren't taught because the slave owners didn't want them to have education because then they might start questioning things, and they didn't want them to have education because they didn't think they needed it. Sorry, don't, I don't care for slavery. If you couldn't tell. You know, this is not a thing that makes me happy. And um, throughout her years, she was often hired out to other families. 
one of the things that they would do with slaves back then is if one particular family had more than they needed to actually run everything, they would hire out some of their slaves, perhaps that were smaller, younger, less trained, to other households to help other households out. So they would get income from the slaves by hiring them out as cheap labor and then not also having to feed the slave because the other family would take care of it. So Harriet was hired out to several different families, and at the time she was still known as Araminta or Minty. But she would be hired out to other families. She was hired out to one family to watch their children. She was hired out to other families to do just, you know, general housework type of things. During one of those times when she was hired out, she actually ended up getting hit in the head very strongly with a sort of metal weight. She happened to be present when an argument was happening between an, a slave kind of trying to run away and his owner. And when she wouldn't help, the owner ended up throwing something at the runaway slave, but hit Harriet instead. The head trauma caused her to be laid out for two days, but they never sought medical care for her because they didn't think she was worth the money. So she ended up with a lifelong issue where she would have dizziness and spells of pain and she'd also have some strange visions and very vivid dreams which for her she often interpreted some of those dreams as being premonitions from god or things god was telling her because that was her way to explain it back then keep in mind this is the early 1800s they didn't have a full understanding of you know brain damage and things like that that we do now so to her she knew she had issues ever since she got hit in the head but the visions and stuff were coming from god because that was how she could explain it to herself despite the head injuries and despite the trauma and the side effects after she remained a very strong woman in general she was a slave but she didn't want to be and there's a family story that at one point, one of her owners wanted to sell more of the family. She'd already had several of her siblings sold off, and they came for one of her brothers, who was named Moses. When the slave owner tried to sell Moses, her mother hid him and threatened to harm anyone who came in to try to get her son. Now, historically, that usually would not go well for the slave in question. Often they would be beaten or punished and the child might be taken away anyway. In this particular case, at least as far as the story is told, so as much as we know since it was so long ago, it actually worked. The slave owner backed away and decided not to try selling her son, and so Harriet's brother was safe and wasn't sold. Now, how much of this is exaggerated as like a big family story that was told, how much of it is 100% true, it's a little hard to say. But regardless, that story showed to Harriet that you could resist. You didn't have to do what they said. You could put your foot down and maybe win. And for obvious reasons, I believe that probably colored some of her views in terms of how she saw everything later in life. She was still a slave, but she did eventually marry. Um, she actually married a man who was free named Ben Tubman. And that was also when she took the name Harriet. Previously, she'd been Araminta. She took Harriet, which was her mother's name. So she went from being Araminta Ross to Harriet Tubman. Now, after she married, he was still free. She was still a slave. And this was something that did occur back then during the time of slavery that also had some freed slaves and the, you know, 
1830s, 1840s. This happened because there was no law saying you couldn't marry a slave if you were a free African-American, but marrying them didn't automatically free the slave. So what that meant is, in some cases, the free spouse would try to save up money to purchase the slave spouse. Other times, they would just deal with it. And if the slave got sold, then the spouse would have to either decide to stay behind or follow their spouse to wherever they were going, you know, things like that. So it did end up splitting up a lot of families, but at the same time, slaves were worth money. So they weren't, they were sold back and forth, but not necessarily every other day or anything like that. So it just, it tore a lot of family of families apart and then there were some who found ways to stay together either by purchasing each other or by just moving. But that's the way it was for them back then, unfortunately. And because of this, when Harriet decided to run away, her husband actually didn't go with her. The first time she ran away, she ran away with two of her brothers. And when they got back up to the north, well, when they got to the north where they would be quote-unquote free, even though they were fugitive slaves... Her brothers decided to go back. Uh, from what we know, it's probable that one of them had recently become a father and another one of them was possibly also pining after the family he had left behind because it was just the three of them that got away. So they took her back with them as well. And after that, I mean, I don't have a lot of information on it. I'm sure there was some kind of punishment that happened to them because that's often what would happen, but exactly what happened is unknown. However, she later escaped again, this time by herself. And again, she left without her husband. She just, she needed to get away, but her husband had a business that was established in the area, so he didn't go with her. No one knows the exact route she used. Obviously, that's something that was kept very close to the hearts of those involved in the Underground Railroad, which, for anyone who isn't familiar with the term, the Underground Railroad is the route by which escaped slaves could be freed. It was a very complicated uh, and very secretive network of different people who were abolitionists. They were anti-slavery. They wanted to help these people get free. It was very informal. There wasn't, you know, any legal work at all involved in it, but it was also a very well-organized system, and it was largely composed of people like free slaves. Sometimes actual slaves would also help with getting the other slaves freed. There were also the white abolitionists that I mentioned, and then quite often there were members of the Quakers, who were a religious group, and they were called the Religious Society of Friends, or Quakers, either term is correct, but they very much did not agree with slavery, and so they were often friendly to escaped slaves and would try to help them as much as they could. We do know that she escaped, and made it all the way up into, uh, Delaware and Pennsylvania, and ended up settling in Pennsylvania at the time. She traveled at night using the Northern Star and going to the different conductors, which is what they called the people who were members of the Underground Railroad, and getting her way all the way up to the end. Now, once she got to Pennsylvania, she immediately started thinking about all the family she had left behind. She wasn't literate when she was young, but she did have some teaching later in life. And also, of course, 
she had friends near her who could write. And so we do have some records of things she said. Uh, when she first crossed the line into Pennsylvania, there's a, a quote from her as saying, when I found I had crossed that line, I looked at my hands to see if I was the same person. There was such a glory over everything. The sun came like gold through the trees and over the fields, and I felt like I was in heaven. She was so ecstatic to be free, so happy to be away from being enslaved to another person, that this was how she felt. But then after getting to Philadelphia, she started thinking about her father and brothers and mother and sisters and all her friends back in Maryland. She was free, but she wanted them to be free also. She worked a lot of odd jobs and saved up her money and tried to figure out how to get to them. Meanwhile, unfortunately, in 1850, the U.S. passed the Fugitive Slave Law, which would punish anyone who was helping escaped slaves and also would heavily punish the escaped slave themselves. This didn't necessarily stop people in the Underground Railroad because they wholly believed in their cause of getting rid of slavery and helping these escaped slaves. But it did make it a lot harder to find people that were committed because the punishment was more severe. It also made it harder for escaped slaves because until then, if you were somewhere living in the North and people kind of knew you were an escaped slave, but you know, that's just, nobody says anything. You're, you, you're there. You're not hurting anybody. It's fine. We don't care. The North didn't have slavery. Previously, people just kind of ignored it, but with this new law, it meant that if they didn't report the escaped slave, they could suffer consequences. So it made it a lot harder for people in the North to even be just sort of neutral. And um, this was also around the time that a lot of people, a lot of the escaped slaves in the North of America even though they were technically in the northern U.S. where there wasn't slavery, they started migrating north up into places like southern Ontario because in Canada, slavery was illegal. So they could go north, even further north than they already had, and escape from having to worry about being prosecuted for being free or for escaping. During this time, she started going back for family. In December of 1850, she found out that her niece, Kasaya, and two children were both going to be sold. So she went down to Baltimore where they were going to be sold, and her brother-in-law, Tom Tubman, so her husband's brother, hid her so that she could rescue her niece and her children. She ended up getting um, Kasaya's husband, John Bowley, who was a free black man, to help her. He actually purchased his wife. He won the winning bid during the purchase, but wasn't necessarily going to be able to get her children also, his children, which is one of the things that would happen to these families, unfortunately, sometimes is, you know, the husband would try to buy his family, but couldn't always afford everybody. So sometimes they'd have to pick, you know, do you buy your children? Do you buy your wife? Who do you purchase? Which is a horrible thing to have to even consider, but it's what they had to do. He purchased his wife and was able to win her at the auction. And then during the lunch break, he and her and his wife and the children, all of whom were Harriet's family, escaped with her to a nearby safe house and then or escaped to a nearby safe house. At night, um, he and his family sailed to a boat um, towards Baltimore and they met with Tubman, who 
brought the family to Philadelphia. So that was her first round of bringing some of her family to safety. She took them to Philadelphia, which again, with the new slave law, wasn't 100% safe, but it was still a lot safer than where they had been. And they wouldn't have to worry about Kasaya and her children being sold so that John could never see them again or could possibly never find them again. It kept the family together and it helped them escape from slavery. That was her first of many, many, many trips back to free more slaves. But I will talk to you more about that when we come back from the break. Okay, so I'm going to try to keep this really quick which I I say every time and I never manage it, but I'm going to still try. So World Anvil, if you do world building for D&D or any kind of RPG or any kind of book writing or anything like that, please, please, please go check out worldanvil.com. It's an amazing world builder. There's so many things you can do with it. It's so robust. It's just amazing and I can't praise it enough. Second sponsor, because we love them so much, Die Hard Dice. Again, not a, I can't praise this company enough. They're so amazing and they go above and beyond. They send handwritten notes to people when they send you your dice. They wish you well. You know, sometimes they send extra dice if you happen to make a comment saying that it's like your birthday or something. They're just amazing. And the dice themselves are gorgeous. They have these beautiful metal dice. They're so pretty, so heavy, and they roll wonderfully. And on top of that, they have several ones where they've rounded the corners. So if you step on a D4, don't get me wrong, it's still gonna hurt, but it's not gonna like pierce your foot and it won't leave big dents in your table and they're just, they're gorgeous. I can't praise them enough. Also, if you go to dieharddice.com and use the coupon code geekthyself, all one word, you'll get 15, 1-5% off your next purchase. So whether it's your first time buying with them or whether you're just using the code for the first time, you get 15% off your purchase, which is awesome. So I definitely recommend you check them out. That's dieharddice.com. And I think that was a relatively quick mid-roll. So now let's get back into this week's topic. Okay, so like I said, Harriet Tubman's first trip was to get family back, which given how much they meant to her was not overly surprising. But after getting her niece and her two children and her husband safely up to Philadelphia, She kept returning and guided more and more of her family. The following spring, so in 1851, she went back to Maryland and helped guide her brother, Moses, and two other men who we don't have identification on. And we don't know 100% because a lot of things were kept very hidden to protect people, but we do suspect she worked with Thomas Garrett, a Quaker who was in Wilmington, Delaware. And it was also around this time that word of some of her exploits had reached her family and encouraged her family. And it's also around that time that most biographers agree she started to become more confident in her abilities. So this was her second trip and she was bringing more family back. I could go through all of the trips we know of, but it's it's a lot. Between 1849, when she herself escaped and 1860, so during an 11-year time span, we know that she went back to the eastern shore of Maryland and rescued 70 or so slaves during about 13 different expeditions. So that doesn't necessarily sound like a lot when you consider how many people were living in slavery, but for one person to be the conductor 
on the Underground Railroad. For that many people, that was a lot, especially over the course of 11 years, because there were a lot of people who couldn't do it. Um, one of the things that they had is they had the friendly houses, which were stations. So they had these stations you would stop at along the Underground Railroad. But all of the people that were actually getting the slaves and getting them back up to the north were called conductors. Sometimes conductors would change partway through the trip. You know, you might get to the conductor's hometown and they would pass you off to the next conductor. But Harriet Tubman would take people all the way from Maryland back up into Philadelphia or somewhere in the north and get them free. An important thing, too, to note is that even though she had helped so many people, she's known for having never lost a person. She was one of the few conductors, I'm sure there were others, but in terms of knowing about them, she's the one we know of, who kept every single one of the escaped slaves that she took with her free. She got all of them back up to the north. No one got captured. She never got captured. She never got caught. So that's a that's a really big deal because a lot of people did get caught and were persecuted or some of the slaves would end up lagging behind because of old injuries or something and not be able to make it to the north. So the fact that she not only got everyone there, but also never lost anyone is just, that's a really big deal. One thing that they do know is that she often worked during the winter months because it would make the nights longer, which gave her more time, but it also made the nights darker. So, and people would stay in their houses more because it was cold outside. So it gave her a better chance to get away with them. It was also during this time when she was getting all of the escaped slaves that she was given the nickname of Moses, and that was sort of a code name that was used for her on the Underground Railroad. Her conductor name, if you will, was Moses, as opposed to her real name, which helped protect her also from discovery. But it was given to her by an abolitionist named William Lloyd Garrison, and I I suspect it was likely a combination of her, her religious fervor because she so firmly believed in God and that the visions and things she had were from God, but also the fact that she was leading so many people to the promised land because that's really what she was doing. She was leading slaves who had escaped to the promised land of the North where they could be free. Now, come the Civil War, when abolitionists really were all gung-ho and the North was fighting the South in regards to do we keep slaves or not, which wasn't the only thing that the Civil War was about, but it is one of the things the Civil War involved. And for her, it was the biggest issue of the Civil War, was whether or not the slaves were going to be freed. During that time, she actually started working as a member of the army. Now, she started off as a nurse and was working as a nurse to, you know, help bring people back and take care of them and all of that. And then after that, she actually did lead a raid. After the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, she really considered it a big step forward, and she renewed her support for the Confederacy being taken down. She wanted it gone, she wanted slavery gone, and everything it stood for. And eventually, she ended up leading a band of scouts through the land near Port Royal in the South Carolina marshes and whatnot, and to the eastern shores of Maryland. She knew the area really well. It's where she had grown up down in Maryland, and it's also where she would often get slaves from. So she was a great scout because she already knew a bunch of the hiding spots. It was perfect. 
She worked alongside Colonel James Montgomery and gave him key intelligence that also helped him in the Jacksonville, Florida capture. And so she did a lot of recon and worked with a lot of people there. She was also the first woman to lead an armed assault during the Civil War. Um, Montgomery and his troops were working on um, assaulting different plantations along the Kambahi River. And Tubman advised it and also accompanied along on the raid and helped guide different people through that raid. So she not only was an avid abolitionist and conductor on the Underground Railroad, she also was a Civil War hero, sort of. I mean, not as well known as some of the others, unfortunately. You know, it's not like she was General Ulysses S. Grant, who became a president, but she did make a big impact in the area, and she helped the troops. So she was a soldier, a freedom fighter, an abolitionist, and a, a rescuer for a ton of people at the time. She was seen as a a figurehead for escaped slaves because she had helped so many get out. And not only had she helped them get out, she had turned around again and again and again and gotten more out. And she had put her money where her mouth was on more than one occasion. She actually bought property up in northern New York from an abolitionist she knew and used that as a safe haven for her family and friends. Northern New York at the time was extremely anti-slavery, very, very anti-slavery, to the point where if you lived there and you were an escaped slave, you probably didn't need to worry about it because no one wanted to turn you in because all of them hated slavery. And because of that, she was able to keep her family and friends safe there and even brought up some more relatives from the South. One interesting thing is not long after she bought the property in Auburn, New York, she went back to Maryland and brought back a girl named Margaret. Now, she said that Margaret was her niece, but we don't really have a lot of information about her actual parentage, so we don't know how it was Tubman's niece. One thing is that there are several historians and biographers who think that Margaret might have actually been Harriet Tubman's daughter, and that she went back and got her and brought her back to Auburn because she wanted her daughter with her. Now, there's unfortunately no solid evidence for this. It's just a suspicion because, of course, we don't have DNA records or anything from back then, and no one ever said, so we don't know 100%. But there have been a lot of similarities noticed between Margaret and Tubman from old photos, and there's also the fact that they were extremely close in a way that you wouldn't expect necessarily an aunt and niece to be, as opposed to a mother and daughter. So there's some question marks there. But regardless, she had a huge impact, and later in life she still continued to have an impact even after everything had happened. Um, one important thing too, is that despite all the years she served in the military helping with the civil war, she never received a regular salary and she was denied her compensation for a very long time. She'd had an unofficial status and um, black soldiers didn't always get all the payment they were supposed to receive so she got some eventually, but never quite probably as much as she was supposed to be. And she didn't receive a pension until 1899, when she should have been getting one pretty much the whole time because she had helped so much and been a member of the army. For anyone wondering, she did at one point go back and try to get her husband, uh, Tubman, 
to come back with her. He had actually married someone else by that point because she had been gone for so long and he didn't want to leave. So after her initial anger, which I think most people would have, she basically decided, you know what, he's not worth it. I have other things that are important to me that I need to handle and just kept going with what she was doing and left him behind. Later in life, she was lucky enough to find love again. While she was living in Auburn after the war and she was just sort of set more settled, taking care of family and whatnot, still, you know, openly speaking about what had happened to her and everything. But one of the things she did was take in borders, um, especially, you know, African-American borders, freed slave borders. And one of the people she took in was a man named Nelson Charles Davis. He was a veteran of the 8th United States Colored Infantry. So he'd served in the army and he started working in Auburn as a bricklayer. They ended up falling in love. And even though there was a huge age difference because he was actually 22 years younger, they ended up getting married on March 18th, 1869. They adopted a baby girl whom they named Gertie in 1874, and they lived together until Nelson died in 1888 of tuberculosis on October 14th. So even though he was younger than her, he did end up passing away before her. She continued to have friends and supporters around her. She you know, just kept working for the betterment of the African-American lives. She had established several businesses to help African-Americans. And also later in life, she became an avid suffragette. So she was very much in favor of women's rights, just as she had been for the rights of the freed slaves and African-Americans. She also um, had an admirer of hers, Sarah Hopkins Bradford, write an authorized autobiography, or excuse me, authorized biography. It was entitled Scenes in the Life of Harriet Tubman. It was 132 pages published in 1869 and it did bring Harriet some revenue which was great but um, it took a slightly artistic license on some things so there were a lot of people who you know criticized that a bit. Then in 1886 um, Bradford released a second volume called Harriet the Moses of Her People which was a little bit less caustic in terms of how it viewed slavery and the South, but it was also a book to help Harriet Tubman. Both of those books Harriet got revenue from, which helped her, and that was partly why Bradford wrote them. She wanted Harriet Tubman to have some more income, and that was a way to give it to her. Unfortunately, because she was so giving and so generous and helped so many people, it left her with very little. She was often spending her own money on things for other people and because of this didn't have a lot herself. She also had a couple of incidences. There was one where she was actually swindled by a couple of con men. They told her that they knew where to find buried treasure from the South because a lot of plantation owners would bury their goods before they got raided by the North. And so she ended up falling for the story because she was desperate to find some money. The men ended up attacking her and taking her money and leaving her with nothing. Um, now, at this time, the city of New, or excuse me, not city, the state of New York rallied to try to support her. And a lot of people donated money to her. And this happened again for her later in life because she had left such an impact on them that they wanted to help her. Around the turn of the century, she became involved in the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church in Auburn, and she donated land to them so that they could construct a home for aged and indigent colored people. 
that was that's an exact quote so don't at me for the colored people comment now this was built and named in her honor and they actually charged people an entrance fee and she had wanted it to be free but nonetheless she went there when they opened it it was called the harriet tubman home for the aged and it opened on june 23rd of 1908 now a few years later she actually had to be admitted to this home herself she by 1911 her body was so frail that she couldn't really get around on her own very well anymore you know she was definitely getting up there she'd been born around 1820 and it was now 1911 so she was you know well over 90 years old at this point give or take because we don't know her exact birth year she was around 90 years old which was really old for back then there's a lot of people who did not live that long back then and at this point she was also you know, basically penniless. She'd given so much money to so many other people, she just didn't have a whole lot. So, like I mentioned earlier, this prompted people of New York, especially, to support her again and send in some donations. But surrounded by family and friends, in 1913, she died of pneumonia. She's reported as saying just before she died um, to the people in the room with her, I go to prepare a place for you, which given what she did all her life going back and rescuing her family and bringing them back to the safe place she had prepared for them, definitely would make sense. After she died, she was buried with semi-military honors at Fort Hill Cemetery in Auburn, New York. And that's where she still resides. She left behind a very big legacy. A lot of people were affected by her and her rescues. She was seen as a inspiration to generations of African Americans who had been struggling for equality and civil rights and just the ability to be free. So she left a really big impact. And this is why I personally think it's fantastic that she is going to be the new face on the $20 bill. Don't get me wrong, it's not like, at least as far as I'm aware, it's not like Andrew Jackson was a horrible person. But Having a woman who also is a person of color, who also had such a big impact represented on something like our $20 bill, I think is a really big deal. Now, obviously, there's people who don't agree with that. And, you know, whatever. That's their opinion. You're allowed to have that opinion. I don't agree with it. I think it's fantastic. But that's just me. Uh, with that, though, I'm going to close out this one. Now, for anyone who's wondering about my sources, a lot of this is from Googling because there's a lot of information out there on Harriet Tubman. There's also a very, very in-depth Wikipedia page that you can check out if you want more details than what I went into. Also, I will say there are a lot of books published about Harriet Tubman, including some really good biographies. I actually read one years ago. It was a, this was when I was in like the sixth or seventh grade, I read a big autobiography, or excuse me, biography on her that really left an impression. So when they started talking about Harriet Tubman, I actually already knew who they were talking about and I was all for it. They called her the Moses of her people because she led them to the promised land and led them to freedom. And she left behind a huge impact that is still felt today. She's still quoted today. And I think it's fantastic that she's going to be on the $20 bill. And with that, I'm going to close out this episode and I will talk to you next week. Please remember to check out all the other wonderful shows and productions that we have at nerdsmith.org. You can submit questions or topic suggestions to me on Twitter at amethyst underscore magic with a CK. 
or you can email me at geekthyself at nerdsmith.org. I'll be back next week with a new and interesting topic. Until then, don't forget to geek thyself. Monsters. Savages. Abominations. Eighty years ago, the great kingdoms of the land above drove all monstrous creatures from their domain and claimed the surface of the world for themselves. Those that escaped the slaughter were driven deep underground, banished forever into the lightless reaches of the dark below. In this endless labyrinth of stone tunnels and caverns, their descendants still fight to survive. And she's going to pretend that she's a fan of this dragon. She's going to be, she's going to say, um, Oh my gosh, I have heard of you before. And I am just so happy that you're actually real. And we actually found you. We've been looking for oh, you. That's flattering. I look at O'Neron salute and then go back into the shadows yeah sure make it look so easy <laughs> she gets angry and she just finds dire and just tries to like attack them with it one of this creature's massive clawed hands grabs hold of your wrist the cub yet has strength come explore a world where sunlight is a myth and monsters may become heroes Discover new episodes of The Land Above every Monday on nerdsmith.org, Podbean, or wherever you download podcasts. A proud member of the Nerdsmith Network.